0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Vuk Jukic, and this is Anablock Podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology, ideas, business, science and strategy. This podcast is for anyone that likes to learn new things about business and technology. This podcast is brought to you by Anablock. Anablock is a system integrator and Salesforce partner. Anablock's technical team helps organizations to implement, customize, and optimize their Salesforce applications. Today's guest is Nikita Prokopev. Nikita is founder of Pharos.ai and Golden Ratio Systems. He's a senior software engineer with an amazing career and background. We talk about growing up in Russia, hacking culture, functional programming, early days of Salesforce pharaohs.ai app and about many more tech and non-tech things. Nikita, how are you? How's life?
1: Doing good. Good, good. It's uh, it's a lovely day. Feeling good. Very
0: cool. So it's been almost
1: 12 months actually
0: since this whole COVID era started, at least here in California. Um, I believe like almost when was it mid early March? They yeah, started with yeah. the lockdowns here. Yep. So, how have you been coping as far as the I guess personal life goes and the business has, has it been affecting you in any shape or form?
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly affected me and the family. Um, my business, not so much because I've been working remotely for the past six years or so. Um, nothing's really changed on that front. You know, I have my home office, um, business as usual. Um, Personal level, definitely a different story. You know, we're we're stuck at home. Our daughter is, you know, five years old, needs to get out, play with friends. Um, That that thing has become a lot more complicated. Obviously, you know, uh, can't go out to restaurants and things like that. And, you know, can't see friends as much. Uh, It's been tough been tough but i think uh you know overall there's there's a silver lining to this uh like uh we've learned to cook really well and uh late, <laughs> we late we just, yeah <laughs> going to a restaurant is just not as exciting anymore like we go there and, and sit sit around and we get the food and it's like mm, is this the, is this the same dish that we've ordered last time that we really liked it's nothing special about it, so it's it, it's been interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad, but um, definitely cooking skills have improved.
0: So, do you um, uh, like what what is type of cuisine or what do you like to cook?
1: Oh, I I mean we're just all over the place, really. Um, starting from you know Italian, French, you know the Western foods, and uh, been lately getting into um, a lot of Asian foods. Um,
0: We've
1: been been doing a lot of stir fries. We've learned to cook Thai food really well. We got uh, ingredients, uh, the right ingredients um, are shipped over. So these dishes have started to taste really authentic. Um, Been doing some pho Vietnamese soup. Um, It's just just on another level. Yeah. And then uh, just even going so far as to make our own sushi um, and, um, uh, a lot of peruvian food as well the ceviches oh, wow. and uh, you know things like that so we, we've been just like going country by country man just
0: uh <laughs>
1: dabbing into everything and uh it's it, oh, scandinavian food as well recently interesting
0: um, i have not yeah. had scandinavian yet
1: yeah we've watched a whole series on um, uh, scandinavian cooking and um, you know you think of scandinavian food in some ways it's uh it's got a lot of similarities with Russian food. It's mm-hmm. those same ingredients, super basic, but um, the modern take on the cuisine has been uh, really interesting and uh, some 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 cool stuff for sure.
0: Very cool. So you yeah. are um, you are um, originally from Russian Federation. You are that's right. Yes, born and raised. We're... Born in the
1: USSR.
0: Oh, really? Okay, cool. Actually, I yep. was I was there. The first time I went to that region or that part of the world was during the Soviet Union many years back. Uh, where did you yeah. uh, grow up, or where did you uh, where were you born? Which part of Russia?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, from a small town, really, uh, kind of middle of nowhere. You know, think about Russia; it's uh, it's enormous and uh,
0: the massive country. So, yeah,
1: yeah, that, that that part where I'm from is considered. It's called the central part. Um, it's not really the center, geographically speaking, but it is is not Siberia, and it's not nowhere near Moscow. So they just say it's you know central part. Um, well, the town that's closest to me that you know some people might recognize is called Ulyanovsk, and uh, that is um, the birthplace of uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, oh, wow. uh, whose last whose last name is actually Ulyanov. Hence the name of the town. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they also make a, they also make a, the, the Russian SUV out there. Uh, it's called Wysik, which is uh, just terrible, but uh, you know, that's <laughs> what, uh, that's what the country's had for ages. And they still do, they still do build these cars. Uh, they're still as bad as ever, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's where they make them. Yeah, that's where I'm from. The Volga mm-hmm. River is out there. Uh, I mean, okay, Volga I was going to ask.
0: So that's Volga River, because I see here in Google Volga, Maps. Yeah. So, okay, that's yep. what flows through. Yeah. Um, how big is Ulyanovsk?
1: Uh, I'd say Ulyanovsk is about, uh, I'm not sure what the population is these days, but I'd say it's uh, it's like half a million people, you know. My town is oh, wow. uh, is not that big. It's about 150,000 Um mm-hmm. I mean, I guess by American standards, it's not a small, small town, but it's, it is by Russian standards. So,
0: and did you, uh, so you went to, you were born there, you went to, um, I guess, elementary school over there too, or high school? Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I was born there um, and I had actually lived in Moscow for the first five years of my life. Uh, My uh, dad was going to grad school and so we had a little tiny apartment in Moscow so he could he go study and you know with me and mom would, would stick around um so i went to kindergarten in moscow and then we moved we moved to to our town after that um and then yeah just uh, i started going to school there all the way through high school basically is, uh, so you finish high You'll,
0: yep, finished high school you in school.
1: Yep, and then uh, left for uh, for the us
0: so how is uh, how is the I guess, the education system on that level, because I know when I was, I basically started at high school in former Yugoslavia, and we had a system to Mm -hmm. where in high school, you basically decide kind of your future, maybe profession or career. So I I went to Mm -hmm. basically, it's not like a general high school, like here, it's more like focused on mathematics and I guess informatics, as Mm -hmm. they called it at the time, or computer science, did you or does Russia have a similar system in place or I guess yeah. what was your, what was your schooling experience in Russia? Yeah,
1: um, it, it's, it, it is similar to some extent. so um, it was, you know, it, it was kind of interesting because uh, I started going to school around the time when the country was trying to figure itself out um, after the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. And uh, it they, they kind of started adopting this system of where, okay, you just had public schools, but then each school kind of um, uh, came up with their own system as far as like what directions um, you get to choose. So you didn't get to choose your classes or anything like that. Like here in the US, you would, you know, uh, pick whatever class you want to go to and, or maybe to some extent, right? Um, over there, was kind of a preset curriculum, but you did have, several directions that you could take um, so you could do like um, humanities um, you could do math you could do um, um, chemistry biology uh, I think there was one more in there too so I was in the math kind of direction mm-hmm. um, and yeah it was heavily mathematics physics um, informatics as you said yes that's, that's exactly yep. what we called it it didn't didn't used to be called computer science that was only a term I learned about when I came to the U S yeah. So we had, yeah, we did some programming and basic and Pascal and um, that was all exciting. Um, And then yeah, it was just a lot of math, really Um, some really, really hardcore stuff um, because they, they actually prep you for attending a university after you graduate. And in order for you to get into a university, if you want to get into a, a public university, which a lot of the good ones are public, you have to pass these entrance exams, uh, and there's a series of exams that you have to do. So you you know if you're going for a technical degree, it will have to be some sort of math uh, test. You know maybe a physics exam, uh, and then they give you like a, a Russian exam, which is you know you write a write a paper or something like that. So there will be multiple of these that you have to do, um, and those those math tests that you have to, to go through. Um, they vary in complexity depending on which university you're going to. The top ones are, were extremely challenging and you had to, like you had to be really grilled uh, through high school in order to be able to do that. So that's kind of what they prepped us for. And it was, um, it's funny because I did actually pass the exams to one of the universities, uh, but then I ended up going to the U S and to college. uh, And And how did that (laughs) happen? Oh, um, well, so my, uh, my aunt um, mm-hmm. had uh, immigrated here to the U.S. Um, way earlier in the 90s, and she, she, she basically got married um, here, and uh, she, she'd been in the country for some, some years now, and, you know, was, we just kind of thought, okay, um, maybe we'll get a student visa and, you know, you go study abroad. Um, so that's that's exactly what happened. You know, we got a student visa to attend a community college um, in Illinois, uh, where 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 my aunt lived. Um, so I kind of so like stayed mid, with her. Mid
0: mid to early two thousands, right?
1: Yeah, it was it was early two thousands. Um, okay, I'd uh, I come to the US, yeah, like in two thousand two. So that's when uh, that's when I, I applied for college and all that.
0: So how was your? Uh, I, we, I guess sort of a similar similar background like how was your experience just kind of flying from i'm guessing like through moscow and then landing to maybe chicago i'm not sure where you landed
1: yeah how was how that I, feeling
0: I, when you first kind of hit the tarmac and you're on a different yeah. side of the world and a whole different society different culture different Ooh. everything
1: yeah, it was, it was good. Actually, uh, I should say that I, this wasn't my first trip to the U S um, when I applied to college, this was actually my fourth time to the country. So the first, the first time I came over, I was about 11 years old. And and this was my like very first exposure to, to, to the United States. Um, and I was just, I was just a kid back then, of course. So it, I, I loved it. Um, I, I, when you're that young, you know, the language comes easy to you. It, you don't even think about the, you know, the anxiety that we adults now face, you know, having to speak converse in, in, a, in a foreign language. So I, I, I had a blast and then I came, came a couple times after that. So I've been to the country, you know, I've been to the area. It wasn't a huge change for me, but um, I guess the, the one thing I, that, that was different um, when I, finally kind of moved it, moved to the country was that this was, I I knew that was, you know, this was, this was going to be long-term and I, you know, it's no longer the, I'm not going to have the same experience I had when I was a kid. So I I didn't know what to expect, honestly. And uh, Hmm. I just, you know, uh, it, it was very nice to be able to stay with a relative. So I wasn't like completely thrown into the river and like go swim. I had someone um, that that was that you knew the country that could help me along the way and that was um, it was huge you know that, that yeah really that helped always me. helps yeah mm-hmm.
0: and so you uh you, you said you started in and um so you basically finished high school in Russia came here started community college yep and then at some point well, I guess did did you study uh, engineering or computer science at the community college? Was it was just more kind of broad, sort of. Yeah, education? I, I come in.
1: Yeah, I, I come into the country. I knew exactly what I was going to do. It was always going to be computer science. I've been, you know, into uh, uh, technology since I was a little kid, and um, you know, in, in Russia we had this uh, big hacker culture, which um, I'm sure people will. Yeah. Uh, will understand uh that that this is how it is or maybe they don't understand but that's one thing is uh, this hacker culture is huge you know you you have magazines you have hacker magazines that are sold you know and they would actually publish things that are like here's how you crack this you know here's how you can crack an atm here's how you can you know um, uh, spam a phone call here's you know here's mm-hmm. how you can uh, break a website and I'd read all these things and I was just always fascinated I thought it was extremely cool um, so, and, uh, so let yeah. me just
0: touch on that a bit so I, I yeah. was just going to ask is that like kind of white hat or black hat actors, I mean I guess, they,
1: both? they don't yeah. really okay so when should, they when they yeah. publish this stuff they yeah. they always they always have a disclaimer, you know, this, you know, please do not try this at home, et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> the information that they published was extremely useful for whatever purpose you wanna use this for. If you just wanna, you know, try out your skills and, and do this, you could do it, but you could also use this for malicious purposes, you know, just the same. They, you know, they they didn't really um, they didn't really emphasize what direction you should take this knowledge into it was just like here's how you do it and whatever you want to do with this is up to you
0: that's very interesting so Uh, this is fairly widely spread meaning like a bunch of kids that are getting into programming can kind of learn just programming by following what's in these publications
1: Yep. yeah um i mean i wasn't all malicious of course this is just one area that i was always fascinated with but you know they'd sell this in every bookstore and in every you know um every little shop convenience store you, you have these magazines but then there was kind of a big it culture in russia like everybody would learn the program from an early age it was a thing you know especially if you're in a, like a technical field or i guess if you're you have an interest in math it w- was kind of implied that you'd be um you you go into computers at some point and everybody would you know you there were all these books out there you know learn visual basic learn you know visual studio and c++ and all these books out there that you could just buy and they would just essentially teach you through tutorials how to code of course it's cool as you probably um, remember as well they don't teach you the modern technologies you you know we learn pascal i mean who, who uses pascal yeah. back even back in the day nobody used pascal it was just like here's how you code this these are some constructs that that you can use in this language but you never really would use it in real life um so what did you guys really
0: use prep? like at the time like my um i i'm i'm older than you so my experience kind of starts back in the 80s when mm-hmm. like i started like somewhere in the mid 80s on commodore 64 also with with basic uh, but what did we you used, use in you- russia like,
1: I mean, even though the, there's computers. a bit of a time difference, it didn't yeah. really, uh, you know, <laughs> the technology was so so far behind. We'd mm-hmm. used, um, I think our first machines in our school were um, um, 286s or 386, IBM 386. Um, oh, wow. And they, it was just Q Basic, you know, Quick Basic um, mm-hmm. initially. Then they would, we have Pascal, um, but it, it never went beyond that, honestly. Like, we never got into, you know, the C plus plus and the um uh, uh the other things. It was just it was certainly uh I think they installed Windows. Um I, I don't honestly don't remember when when that was, but they've upgraded their entire um you know, all of their computers. Um they got new hardware and that's when they installed Windows. And that was like towards the end of my time there. So it it was kind of um they didn't really keep up with the technology let's put it that way
0: did did uh did russia at the time were these actually ibm machines or were they clones like replicas oh, I think, of some sort
1: oh, that's a good question i mean i yeah. i i have to say they were probably real the real deal mm-hmm. i knew a lot of these computers they had actually i mean i don't think they purchased them through the u.s um i think they had uh purchased them through um either Taiwan or Japan or Korea. Uh, like that's where a lot of the um, IT equipment came from. And um, I mean, I, I don't know if any of that was official, um, but it was super common to have these um, hardware fairs. You know, you'd go to a bigger city like Moscow, for example, or um, even in Olyanovsk, in they had something like that where you just, you, you come in and this like warehouse looking uh, venue um, and you have all these vendors sitting around with their little booth set up and they have a whole bunch of hardware that you could just you could just buy off of them so a lot of the computers have, were purchased that way um, and in fact they would essentially be able to build stuff for you on the spot like you tell them the specs you want they'd have these price sheets you come up to uh, to one of the booths and be like okay here's the i want this cpu i want this motherboard i want the uh, this graphics card. And, they put it, put it together for you and, and you have a, you have a, a system. So that's how uh, a lot of these, um, a lot of the IT stuff worked back then.
0: Yeah. It's amazing to me that, I mean, we both have been living in the Bay area or Northern California, <laughs> the kind of Silicon Valley, I guess, for some of the listeners that don't know where, what Bay Area is, but, um, it, in a, and we've both been you know in this industry for a while. So you work, you know, generally you have ing- software engineers from every part of the world, almost every yeah. country in the world. But Russian engineers, they were, throughout my experience and many other people have said the same, is definitely some of the best. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that even though after the Soviet Union, things kind of fell apart, there wasn't enough, mm-hmm. probably resources, money, etc. but the, the schooling, I don't know if it's the schooling or just the culture, but something is just keeps on pumping some yeah. really top engineers, like from hedge funds that are in sort of like financial services to Silicon Valley to yeah. everywhere else.
1: I mean, yeah, I think it's a lot of, it's, it's a combination of things, but I'd say um, there's a um, a culture of knowledge, um, that I had experienced personally, I don't think it's quite the same these days, but certainly it was back in my day. Like you, it was assumed that you would want to, you know, um, better yourself in, um, whatever field you choose. So you, you had, you, you almost, you always had this drive that, you know, I got it. I got to do better and, and this or that, um, and certainly in technical fields. Um, there's been a lot of, um, uh, from, from back from the Soviet days, a lot of really smart people had, you know, had stayed in the country and a lot of them left, but some have stayed and those that have stayed have kind of perpetuated this culture of knowledge and have kept the level of um, education quite high. Certainly through um, middle schools and high schools um, and definitely the universities, um, and so that's where, you know, that's why I think the, the, the level of technical education, even though they might not have taught you the latest and greatest in computer science, they, they give you solid fundamentals, um, uh, in, uh, in mathematics and physics and, you know, the technical science fields. And then on the other hand, so that's on one hand, this, this kind of culture of knowledge And on, on the other hand, there was the, um, um, uh, this you know, of, uh, Uh, of of an average person because you, you know, you'd live through Soviet union. It was all, you were always in survival mode because Mm -hmm. um, there's been perpetual deficit in stores. Like you couldn't buy stuff that you wanted. It's not like like what we have here. Now you you go on Amazon or you go to a supermarket, you see everything that that you want. So there's always this deficit of everything, whether it's food, uh, clothing, electronics, you know, what, what have you. Um, So a lot of people, adapted to that and it's just the, the scrappiness was was unreal you know people would learn how to build their own radios from scratch because you you wow. couldn't buy one you know like so you had to yeah. actually build one you go to a store electronic store you get the components and you get a, um, a soldering iron and you put it together you know and you build other things like that and that's it that was the same way with computers you know you wanted to, you, like you build your own computer, you could then, and then you start learning how to program because you wanted to build some software that you wanted. And so this kind of scrappiness has, has been, has been throughout the, the population. And I think that's in part what contributed to the the overall level of um, engineering. Like you, if you want it, make it yourself. There was no other uh, way, so yeah. you had to learn. You know, you had to learn. You, if you didn't, you, you you'd be missing out so it was it's just kind of implied that okay yeah you know, this is what you do
0: so how was the transition then when you came to united states you went to uh, i guess from the uh, high school to community college in uh, u.s and then you uh, got your bachelor's yeah. and master's at the university of illinois, of illinois. Uh, yep how was that transition from, you know, one education system to another, obviously on a, on a different yeah. institutions, et cetera, but um, from the, it, it perspective was of, effective yeah. of learning and, and, and colleagues and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I, um, well, I remember I, I was, you know, by the time I finished high school, I was a total geek, you know, I, you know, spend all my time in front of the computer. Um, And I remember coming to the community college and seeing like this computer lab they had there. Um, And it was, it was nothing special really. It was just, it's a community college. So I I realize it now, but back then I was like, wow they got all these machines and it's these huge monitors. And there's like, and I look up, I booted one up and I looked at the specs and I was like, holy, you know this is great. This This is a serious machine. So I would just spend all my time um, coding away and, you know, doing whatever I uh, had time in between classes. And then I eventually got a tutoring job doing, you know, math, being a math tutor, uh, which was a whole other story, but um, it, it was, um, it, it was awesome. I I'd enjoyed the, um, the abundance of uh, technology and uh, uh, you know, just the overall um, how should I put it? I mean, it's it's kind of like you know if you're a kid and you go to your parents' house and everything's so nice and, and shiny and you know <laughs> that's that's how it felt. It was sort of a oh wow, there's all this stuff and it's uh, it all works and you know I could buy this or that or I could could use the resources that the college provides and it was just it was just insane. Um, and then, of course, when I went to University of Illinois, that was just magnified times 10, because obviously it's a, you know, it's an established school, they have a lot of sponsors. So these the computer labs that they had there was just mind boggling. Um, and, well, that's just, you know, the um, uh, material stuff, if you will, but then um, the education system, I, it was, um, it, it was good. Uh, I, I had really a, a lot of difficulty um, grasping the concept that you you actually choose your own curriculum to some extent. And that was that was uh, that was difficult for me to understand how that that whole thing worked. And uh, it, it was super confusing at first. I I eventually got a, you know got a hang of it. But um, so what did you
0: like choose to do? So this was in the master's program, right? And as a matter of fact, cool. I just before we uh, started talking, mm-hmm. I was just doing a bit of research and i i knew that university of illinois urbana champaign i guess is one of the top computer science university or schools in in the u.s but according to the latest uh uh, rankings that i've seen it's like a top five graduate school for computer science so obviously it's a great school um and I'm just kind of curious, like, what did you end up doing for your master's program? What types of technologies um, were you uh, focused on?
1: Yeah, so I, um, in the master's program, uh, well, first of all, it, it, they have been a pretty uh, high-ranking school for quite some time, even back when I when I gone there. Um, certainly, the engineering field is uh, is well. Uh, respected there and uh there's quite a bit of sponsorship that happens uh, uh like we when i was there they had just built built this siebel center and of course siebel is the oh, wow. uh, you know yeah so he was he was one of the sponsors then. and it was it, it was just uh, I, I don't even know the word to describe it honestly but like, when you when you looked at when you went into that building of course now by not by today's standards it's just you know it's like a it's like a fancy office, but to us college students, you know, having something like that was just insane. And so that's where we had our computer science classes. Uh, that's where they took place and they had these fancy labs and all this cool looking furniture. And yeah, it was, it was great. Um, but as far as, um, the curriculum, uh, I had, um, I'd actually minored in mathematics and this minor doesn't really count for anything. As far as I know, I just really liked, uh, the, the format of the classes and I really enjoyed the lectures. Um, and so I had always been interested in math and and I kind of continued that as I was doing my computer science degree. Um, but as far as the technologies, uh, my one of my favorite things has been um, programming languages and compilers, just learning about, um, you know, what is a language, um, what are the, you know, how do you, How do you build one? How do you, you know, what are some of the major differences in in these languages and how how they evolved throughout the years? Um, And it's actually interesting to see that some of these uh, concepts that have been introduced back in, in the early days, like functional programming, um, at some point that kind of all went away uh, as soon when when C and C++ it became popular and then eventually Java all that functional programming stuff kind of took a, a backseat to um, to these other technologies and now it's it's come Was of scholar back then or yeah, it, it was um, okay. it was yeah even even Lisp I think we'd learned some Lisp uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in one of the classes um, we get still you know, Think about all those parentheses that you had to put. Um, yeah, so that was that was definitely one of the areas that I really enjoyed. I did some um, um, uh, data mining, um, data data mining classes. Um, so that was that was also a lot of fun. It's it's very, you know, k- kind of close to databases, um, but uh, you know, different to some extent. So this is how your data warehouse is built, essentially. You know what? How does it function under the hood and stuff like that? Uh, Of course, these days we just say data warehouse and it's, yeah, but, but there's all technology that goes into building what it, you know, what it is. And, um, now of course, hardware is super cheap, uh, and you've got these distributed computing is just everywhere. Um, back then it wasn't necessarily the case. So you had to be creative with, um, uh, with how you use the hardware. You had to be really careful with resources, um, and then, yeah, I actually did some distributed systems uh, coursework, uh, which I've also found fascinating. Uh, so that was, yeah, uh, that was that was a fun class. Um, I think those were the highlights, honestly. I mean, I've taken mm-hmm. a ton of courses because you had to for uh, even for your four-year degree, and then eventually the master's degree. Yeah, actually, my master's degree, I. I uh, yeah, I, it was it was a little bit fuzzy. Oh, one other thing was um, algorithms, uh, data structures. That was also a favorite topic. Um, it was the hardest topic by far because that that one class um, had a reputation for being just notoriously difficult, and it 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 definitely lived up to its reputation. Um, but because it was so difficult, it it actually I I have come to enjoy it. it, it it's um, it's one of those things that I spent a lot of time on just because I had to, and then eventually it yep. kind of grew on me.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Did you, um, so I, when I kind of got into the, I guess business corporate world, um, mm-hmm. as a young, young uh, computer science um, or web student to a certain extent, uh, I, I started just by default or by pure chance, working on an imp- SIBO implementation I'm wondering did you have any mm-hmm. if you I don't know if you had any exposure at that time to SIBO technology or it's they're kind of well, I, I'm not sure what they had at the time because I, I started like in 2000 when it was a little like desktop based basically you put a disk and, and download right. it and configure it did you at that time have any exposure to any of these kind of like enterprise software applications?
1: Yeah, um, I, I did towards the end of my time at the, at the school. Um, I was like, I was coming up to, uh, I think it was my senior year um, in, in my four-year program. And um, the one thing I remember was applying for an internship Um in one of the companies in Chicago, and this company is called Big Machines, uh, and oh, yeah. uh, they they are of course uh, well known in the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, and they were acquired by I,
0: Oracle a few years back, I believe.
1: They yes, exactly. They they've been yeah. bought, um, uh, and they um, and I when I was talking to the uh, uh, the people that interviewed me. I was just, I was really trying to understand what it is that the thing does. And and they were like, well, our product is uh, is, is built on this, this or that. And I, I, at the time I didn't realize what it was, but then of course uh, I, I knew later on what it was. Uh, and they were saying, okay, well, we, we do a lot of implementation work and it's all JavaScript. I'm like, hmm, that doesn't sound very interesting at all. I don't think I want to do mm-hmm. this job. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, you know, of course when you're out of college you, you learn about all these technologies it's super exciting like you want to do you know um uh, you know, super and you want to do like uh, all the cutting edge stuff and uh and then you you and of course every every student that was um Um, about to graduate they all wanted a job at Google or Microsoft because that's you know that always kind of or Amazon they always associate them with like these are the the big players that have all the coolest technology so if you want to be a computer science guy or gal then you go work there Um, and of course it was a total misconception and uh, later on i learned that that was just ridiculous you know that they are not the only ones with technology and technology is not the only thing that counts and it's not you know um uh, and, and yeah and then i've, I've, I've certainly adjusted my uh, perception of of the um, technology world but yeah my first exposure was big machines and it was uh i i didn't like what i saw honestly <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how did you uh I'm guessing maybe at some point you were in some shape or form introduced to Salesforce because that's, yeah. you know, you landed at Salesforce at one point in your career and you you, you were there for quite a few years.
1: Yeah. That yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, that was also uh, uh, quite a long story, but I'll, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll keep it short. But uh, so basically I had a buddy in, um, and he was also from Russia originally. Uh, and he had been, we like him and I have been almost, you know, on parallel tracks, basically taking all the same classes, doing all the same things. Um, he had introduced me to, uh, to my future employer, um, who was, um, that was at NCSA. Uh, so they had this uh, National Center for Supercomputing Application, I think is the, uh, uh, the, the proper terminology, what they're called. Um, that's where they built the mosaic browser, by the way, um, oh, the very wow. first graphical, yeah, graphical interface for a browser. So, and then that eventually became the Netscape browser and so on. So forth. And you know, the story from there. Yep. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's where they, they had built that. And I was like, Oh, cool. I, you know, I, I can work there and, uh, you know, you had this, uh, that you could, uh, uh, you could run jobs on and stuff like that. Of course I, I wasn't really, uh, I did some of that, but, um, I built a web application for them in Java, and that was my kind of my first real life project. And um, you know since I had become familiar with Java, I was um, we had career fairs going on at the school um, pretty much throughout the year. And so companies would come there um, and it, it helped that University of Illinois was such an established school that you you know you, you get good exposure to a lot of the companies. Certainly all the big names and uh, were there in this career fair. And, uh, one of those names was, uh, Salesforce, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they, um, they, they started doing college recruiting and that was their very first, um, attempt to get, you know, to get some developers from college. And uh, one of the schools, I think one of the, um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, uh, a manager on the API team back then in Salesforce, he had, um, it told them, "Hey, you should go to University of Illinois because that's where I went." And, and so they did. Um, and I, I talked to them. Um, and of course, my buddy had interned there, and he was like, "Yeah, this is—I uh, mean, this is a CRM software." I didn't know what CRM was back in the day. Um, hmm. And and so I told him, "You know, what what do they do? Is it is it any good?" He said, "Yeah, it, this is this is this is really cool. It it they have a lot of good technology. They're all, they're a Java shop." What
0: year was this? when um
1: this was uh 2000 i want to say it was 2004 or 2005 something like that
0: oh wow okay yeah i actually wasn't that's when i was approximately introduced to salesforce i kind of remember that the way their application looked back then but yeah so mm-hmm. he basically your buddy introduced you to the whole to yeah the he introduced the me
1: to the company yeah exactly <laughs> he had uh um, you told me about it because I, you know, it wasn't one of the names that you would you would want to pursue. You know, it's just they, they yeah, especially weren't back a then. player. Yeah, yeah and, and certainly not for a college student that wants to do cool computer science stuff. You know, it wasn't just on the list anywhere. You you know, you'd go for Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and, you know, like other firms like that that you know are, are going to have you work on the computer science stuff. But, of course, that wouldn't necessarily be true, but that's what you thought as you know that was the mentality and then um i had uh, spoken to the um the representative there which i think was uh his name is chris fry uh he's uh um i think he's uh he's probably not at salesforce at this point he's you know adventures long retired uh, hmm. and uh yeah and i really liked the conversation and uh, eventually they invited me to an interview in san francisco which i like okay well if i don't like it i'll get a free trip out of it why not visit the west coast <laughs> i've never been exactly. so i went um and i love the city and uh i love the company uh, they were back then they were on one, one market uh right right on the embarcadero right across from ferry building they didn't have the salesforce yes. tower back then of course it was just yep. uh, um, they just had one building essentially. And, um, it, it was awesome. They had awesome, that
0: No Software logo or sign. They right? had the No somewhere. Software logo. Yeah, yep. I remember As that. you
1: come into the, the One Market Plaza, it was the first thing you saw, No Software. Um, yeah, I, and, and I, I had a really good experience uh, during that interview. Um, there were a couple other people together with me and one of them was also from University of Illinois who I did not know, but we had met during the interviews, um, and, you know, they give us a, a bit of a tour in the city and uh, and it was it was all good fun. Um, but yeah, so that's how I kind of uh, ended up. I had another offer in, on the East Coast, which I, the company that I've interned with, uh, and I decided, you know, um, I've been to the East Coast. Let me just, let me do something else. Let me go to the West Coast. And it was, uh, and I ended up staying <laughs> yeah, for, uh, been
0: here ever since.
1: Been here so, ever since and loving it. Yes.
0: So what what did you um, you know um, types of technologies or whatever you can I'm not sure what how much you can disclose but in general like I'm I guess some of the listeners might be curious in general because you know since we're kind of oriented around Salesforce and Salesforce ecosystem yeah. I'm sure a lot of people want to know more like what's inside basically what is Salesforce sure. as a company uh, as a as a group of people
1: I, mean, I, I think I can. Be, I, mean, I think I'm okay in, in talking about back this then. now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because this a lot of time has passed and I think things have changed. Um, but uh, when when you came in as a developer, uh, you were really a full stack developer. There was like no other option. There was no co- concept of, okay, I'm just going to do the front end or I'm just going to work on the, on the back end database stuff or, or just middle layer. It, there was none of that. You, you would come in, you had to know everything from from SQL to uh, the CSS, um, and and you, you worked on all of those things. I mean, of course,
0: and, later and they are on. They're Java you, shop,
1: right? They are a Java shop. Yeah, they they yeah. Uh, they have been for for quite some time. Um, uh, and I, I don't think it's a secret to anyone that 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 is the case. Um, on the back end, again, I don't think it's a it's a huge uh, secret or anything. They've used Oracle for ages. Um, yeah. So that's Oracle well database. Yeah, and then they've uh, they have a lot of PL SQL code. Um, in fact, one of the first uh, the first language that the developers gave uh, the Apex language, as we know it today, was PL SQL, because it's uh, it's sort of like it 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 the inspiration was that it would you know would accomplish the same things that uh, PL SQL would for Oracle. Like it was a procedural mm-hmm. language that you you'd, you'd use in your in your triggers in the database and you can, you know, write your stored procedures. And uh, so that's kind of what Apex was initially. You thought, you know, the main use case was you'd write a trigger, you know, it's all kind of low level. Um, and so, yeah, so as a developer, you coming in, you had to know everything from that PL SQL language to the style sheets. Uh, and it was, it was kind of crazy. You know, you had, uh, uh, you get a bug uh, and of course, you initially when you start out, they just give you. So, did
0: you some bugs. did you actually work um, with Java beforehand, or like yes, did you uh, learn? I did at yeah, salesforce yeah. Oh, so you did? No, okay. no.
1: Yeah, I did work with Java. Um, I had that job at NCSA where um, I w- I built a um, an entire web application in Java. That was quite a learning experience for me. But I was pretty good at C before that. I did a ton of my own coding projects that I just. I, I knew C++ fairly well. It was a fairly easy to it was fairly easy to transition to Java from C++. Um, and then, of course, you know, I had some experience in the field, so that's you know, I, I came into Salesforce being proficient in Java, but uh, of course, um, having to learn their huge code base and learning to um, properly code as you would in the enterprise environment, and uh, was of course, something that had to had to have happened, um, and it did. It was, um, you know, you when you're a developer working on little projects, it's one thing, but then you come in with a hundred other people working on a piece of software, it's totally different. And um, I got so how many to the concept?
0: Uh-huh. How many? Um, how many employees did Salesforce have at the time?
1: I like, think. How big um, was the
0: company overall?
1: I know that the R&D organization, and that included development QA, um, you know, managers and um, DevOps and um, database people, uh, that organization was right around 200 people. Um, so oh, it was okay. not... It was it was they, sizable, you know. It, it, Salesforce had become an established player, uh, but they were not at the stage that they would later on get to be yeah. uh, where this the this no software concept was moving along really well but it wasn't it, it hasn't become ubiquitous you know it, yeah. it, they, they were still trying to shift people's mentality to what you know what you can do on the cloud so it was you know i think overall maybe it was less than thousand people at that time like including everybody
0: so it was a it was a much smaller organization at the time did you actually oh yeah I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you ran or saw at least uh, Parker Harris.
1: Oh yeah. 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 In fact, uh, our, um, where my first desk uh, was on the eighth floor and that was uh, where Mark Benioff's office was. He had a, a kind of a corner section blocked off. He's got, he had the conference room in there and you know, we you'd see him all the time walking around, mm-hmm. you know, you you'd run into him in the elevator, Parker Harris, for sure, you know, was, was there um, I, I oddly enough, I saw Parker way less than I saw Mark Benioff for whatever reason. I think maybe that's been on the same floor I had something to do with it, but that, that's just yeah. how it was.
0: I I um don't, never really read too much about Parker Harris, I did see him once at the Hiraku office, but I, I read quite a bit, including like a couple of books that uh Mark Benioff published. And I know you know that's a mm-hmm. well known fact, he came from Oracle uh did did like they yeah. pull a lot of developers or engineers from oracle considering like oh yeah,
1: yeah. oh yeah oracle um <clears throat> people soft um siebel mm-hmm. um yeah pretty much people soft was a big one or uh, a lot of ex-people Soft. It was also a crm company um they i think they were bought by siebel if i'm not mistaken and then um Uh, Yeah. And I I don't remember the sequence of acquisitions that took place, but at some point there were all these PeopleSoft employees that just wanted a job and Salesforce happily gave them that. So there were quite a few. Yeah, I think there
0: was like a hostile takeover of PeopleSoft and that's actually unpleasant. Pleasanton. Actually, I used to work at the building next door. And now, work the founders, I forgot their names now, are the founders of Workday. So they end up, um, you know, building right. another great company. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, it was, it was uh, the, some of those um, concepts that were at PeopleSoft, like the Apex language, I think was born part due to um, some of those employees. They, they, they wanted a proprietary language on the platform. Um, and I think maybe even Visual Force to some extent. I, I don't quote me on that, but I think a lot of the inspiration for the platform features that we know uh, came from from those days, uh, from from those people.
0: So that's interesting. So basically, there was PL Socle and then yep. PeopleSoft and- folks came in, and they had their own sort of maybe ideolo- ideology or even technology that they maybe merged into. PL Sockle, and then that's how, I guess, kind of loosely speaking, Apex was born?
1: Apex, yeah. So I, I think it was actually like PL Sockle was born from from, from that from that, oh, I um, generation of PeopleSoft employees. Yeah, they and then they, they didn't know what to call it, so they called it PL Sockle because they had PL SQL, and then you had SQL and Sockle, so it was just kind of a natural... Uh, name that, that came about. Um, and then later on, of course, marketing took over and they had started uh, turning their wheels and uh, they they had uh, come up with the name Apex. Um, and then it was an Apex platform uh, was was what they referred to the overall platform, uh, which is we now know as force.com. Uh, and I don't even know, maybe they come up with another name again. So.
0: Yeah, it changes all the time. As yeah. <laughs> <It's laughs> <thrill. It's laughs> developers used to by now. So, uh, what types of uh, I guess what did you you spend about close to nine years at Salesforce? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm guessing you worked on all kinds of stuff during those nine years. Uh, is there anything kind of like I guess what was exciting to you? What was something that you enjoyed?
1: It was um uh, yeah a few things actually. So I um when I started off I was just working on general stuff like anything and everything. Um you didn't really have well defined teams back then. So you, you, well, we kind of had the API team that built the SOAP API. Um, so that was one direction. And then there were a bunch of other teams that uh, some of them worked on marketing features, some worked on sales, and then there was like the platform team. So believe it or not, that was, uh, it was just one team at that point. And they had worked on all the UI, the front end, they worked on, you know, custom fields, all the setup. Um, they worked on um, just overall, um, Um, core engine um, of of Salesforce and the framework that that went into it. Um, So I'd worked on um, initially um, worked on part of the reskin from the classic, classic Salesforce. And I don't know if people know about this, but the classic Salesforce that you see today uh, is not really the original interface. They had another interface before that, that was you know, it was ridiculously old by the today's standards. So it would certainly look jarring, uh, but they were trying to transition from that to what we now know as classic. And so I'd worked on that reskin uh, for part of my time, um, just, you know, making sure all the CSS was good and then all the markup was uh, was functioning properly, of course, you know, testing or fixing all the browser bugs and things like that. Um, my second project uh, was Uh, building a an internal cpq tool for salesforce to use and they had made the decision that this is now the time like we're gonna build our stuff build the stuff using our own technology so we had with our team was kind of the pioneers for using apex and visual force um and wow that's interesting Mm. yeah it it was um it was it was a cool experience there was no metadata API. Uh, one of the developers that was uh, whom I really highly respect to this day, uh, it was one of my mentors. Um, he just like built the metadata API because we needed something to deploy code from source control. And so he like kind of put together the framework for it and then eventually it evolved into a metadata API. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, we all do yeah, go that often. The Metadata yes. API, yeah,
1: yeah, it is, is now a must have if you're building it. I mean, all the IDEs use it, so it's it. you know, um, it, it's certainly uh, a necessity these days, but it's kind of crazy to think that it didn't exist at some point. Um, and so they had actually developed this alpha version of Metadata API for this project because we have to we had to get things done you know we had to keep code in the repo and then deploy it to all of our test environments and production environment and then you know of course building an apex they had to add a lot of features to apex in order to make it do what we had to do with it um, visual force like AppExchange exchange was built on visual force um, the very very early visual force and they had to go through the same process a lot of features had to be added a lot of bugs had to be fixed so i'd say half of the project was, um, building features to the requirements, the uh, or the other like twenty five percent was figuring out how to deploy it, getting past through all the deployment errors, and fixing the tools. And then the the the, the other twenty five percent was fixing bugs in the platform. Uh, so that was that's what it was so, like. And so it where does
0: Visual Force? I guess what's the um... I mean, I, I can see Apex, uh, but Visual Force is sort of, at least to me, very unique. I don't see that in any other technology, something similar. I guess, do you know what's the history behind yeah, it? Or?
1: The, it definitely has a history, and it's not a concept that Salesforce came up with. Um, well, first of all, back then it was called Apex Pages. Okay. So yeah. There's still like
0: the... metadata that, yep. well, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, even now, like you go to Visual Force Pages slash Apex yep. slash whatever, so it's it, it's been Apex Pages for quite a while, um, and uh, yeah, it does have a uh, predecessor which is called the Java Server Faces, um, or JSF, as as it was um, abbreviated, uh, and it it is very similar. You've got your you know kind of markup, um, custom markup that uh, will. Um, that will then get processed on the server side and it will spit out um, the actual markup that is presented in the browser. Um, and they had the same kind of concepts for here's a post back, you know, here, you know, here's the call an action on the controller. So all of that was um, it was already built as part of JSF. And so Salesforce just took that and adapted it to, um, to become Visual Force, like of course they had introduced their own um, tags and you know how the controllers worked and those sorts of things. And um, but a lot of it was already uh, already out there. They they had a team that uh, I think it was literally like a couple developers that that had built this. Um, and of course it was a very early version. Later on, I had actually worked on the Visual Force team, um, kind of in the middle of my tenure there. Um, and it was a mature feature by then. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where it originated from. A lot of the Java ecosystem had a lot of those things already, uh, built and, um, uh, they weren't very well adopted, uh, but, uh, Salesforce had kind of turned that around. Uh, they built their own technology based on that.
0: Very interesting. So what are some of the things before, I guess, the before your tenure ended with Salesforce, um, that yeah. you were involved in?
1: So, um, after this uh, CPQ project, I got, um, they had formed a security team, uh, which was tasked with um, you know essentially a lot of things. Uh, it, was, it was a time where Salesforce kind of realized that, okay, they, they could get hacked and they have gotten hacked. And it was a big public scandal at some point. Um, that there was a phishing you know, incident and they had really started doubling down on the platform security. And so our team was the first that kind of did that. So we had gone through and we'd fixed a lot of the cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, um, cross-site request forgery, um, built a, um, uh, the, our team had built um, SSO support. So SAML was, One of the first things that that was built and then followed by auth um, that was implemented in the platform Um, identity confirmation that you probably everyone knows and loves the thing that sends you an email with the code. Um, That was, that was a thing that I personally worked on um, and was one of my first projects there. Um, We had, we had to refactor all the login code or not the logging, but the login the stuff that lets you into the system. We had to refactor that um, and make it more manageable because it was just a nightmare. They had portal, you know, customer portal logins, partner portal logins, and back then it was, there was no communities, it was just called partner portal, customer portal. Um, So I worked on that. Then I eventually um, moved to a team called Sites Team. So that worked on sites and we had built the My Domain feature, uh, you know, how you can create a domain name for your organization. So that was another thing. Then I, I went to work for uh, for a Visualforce team where we had you know built uh, a bunch of stuff for the the Visualforce engine. Uh, one of my projects was optimizing the compiler uh, to change it to use a different parser. Um, and then we had just got we had a huge backlog of bugs <laughs> to go through. Um, and then eventually, after Visualforce, I had moved on to. I'd actually moved out of the R&D organization and went into a, uh, 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 the team called ProdSec, uh, product security. So part, you know, that was just, uh, um, this team was responsible for, um, you know, evaluating the platform from a security standpoint and um, reviewing a lot of code and uh, building tools to um, automate penetration testing, some of it was doing security reviews for AppExchange. Um, so the, um, when you submit for a security review, there's this tool out there. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like the cloud scanner that you could submit jobs to, and it will give you the, uh, uh, the results of the static analysis checks and a few other things. Um, so I actually built the first version of that tool uh, that was using a, an external scanner, um, and it was built in the cloud on Heroku. Um, so yeah, I think that things like that was actually my last project there. And then eventually I founded my own company after Mm -hmm. I'd left.
0: So you basically at some point said, this is enough. I'm done with working at Salesforce. And then you just, uh, really continued with the same technology, but you just became more of an independent or at least a consultant of some sort. Yep. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I mean, how was that transition? Um, it was it was actually not a very um, smooth transition uh, but it it uh, but it could have been I mean it could have been worse <laughs> so I'd I'd um, i spent a lot of time at Salesforce I've been to all these teams and I've worked on a lot of things that I wanted to and um, as I was you know as I was there I, I come to um, kind of like and respect the business side of things um, not just the technology part of it I you know, it was kind of eye-opening for me to see how technology that you build, like for you as a developer, or for me at the time anyway, it was just like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna write some code, it'd be really cool code, I'm gonna do my best. I'll, You know, uh, it'll be really fast, it'll work great, it'll be um, it'll be great code to look at. So I had kind of been in that mentality. I just, you know, I wanna do my, my best as an engineer, um, but it was kind of eye-opening to see that, hey um, this stuff that I'm building people are using it and it's helping them and it's you know it's accomplishing goals and it's driving their business Um, and so that was a really cool uh, perspective to kind of um, adopt Uh, and eventually I you know um, I'd realized that you know hey I've I've been working on the platform I I know how to do this stuff Uh, and some of the um, And then, you know, of course, I, I, you know, I get friends that uh, worked in the less technical fields, but they were close to the business. So they hit me up and say, hey, you know, work at Salesforce. How do you do this and this? I tell them, you go to the setup, you enable this permission. And so I kind of started doing this informal consulting, um, telling them how to use the platform. And eventually they started paying me for it um and then it just i you know uh, it, it then occurred to me you know why i want to do this full time you know this is great i know this stuff um I, I i think i can you know help a lot of people uh it's it was good money so it just made sense to um to make that transition and uh yeah i had to learn a lot in the process uh but it was great uh, the one of the things you know you can't stop moving you know you, exactly and i feel you know i felt like i've exhausted the Engineering path, and I, I I I saw where it would, you know, it would uh, eventually lead me to, and that's I, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, you could go on to become an architect and, uh, you know, uh, or a super senior principal developer um, that you make a lot of decisions and technical decisions, and and it was great, but um, I thought I, you know, I'd done enough of that, so I, you know, I wanted to do something else and. So that's where it kind of uh, went from there.
0: So you you uh, started, you know, left Salesforce. You continued, you know, working with the technology itself, helping other clients and with different implementations or in general technical problem solving some sort in some uh, shape or fashion. And then eventually you decided and just kind of like to to put a bit of a disclosure. So uh, Nikita actually has a consulting company today at the same time you have uh, another product company where you have uh, developed a product uh, which probably in some near future is going to be available it's available today for everyone and we're going to share more information with this podcast or where to find it and how to reach to Nikita in general but uh, you created a product that's going to be on app exchange at some point in the near future um, yep. I guess how, how did that, so, you know, you went working with Salesforce consulting and then at some point you said, well, I think there's some kind of a, a product need here that I just identified yep. and I'm going to build it. I guess if you can yeah. tell me a little bit about that, that process.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, th- yeah, it was like you said, you know, being a consultant for quite some time um, you work with a lot of companies and you you eventually understand their pain points and learn how to help them. Um, And uh, I, you know, always, since I was always technical and initially starting out, I wasn't very business focused and um, I I was learning about the business, but um, mostly been on the technical side of things uh, uh, even when I was doing consulting. So a lot of development, um, a lot of code, a lot of, you know, building UIs and things like that. So it, I was always deep into the development side of things, and it. it um, and I always kind of try to keep up with what the platform is doing, and um, you know, what are the tools out there that that I can leverage? Um, and you know, as every time I go to uh, uh, do a project, uh, and we build an integration or we build, you know, something somewhat complex, uh, there always be a need to create this, you know. Some, do some sort of logging um, error handling. And, and you'd build this once, you build this twice, uh, build this three times, four times. Eventually it was, uh, it got to a point where, like, you know, why am I doing this all the time? I should just, uh, I should just build a package and uh, that I can install into a uh, client's orgs and I could use it, save some time, um, save them the budget so they can, you know, give me other work that's more relevant to the business um, and so I built this package and then eventually I thought, Hey, you know, this, this is, uh, this is missing from Salesforce, um, uh, tool set, a developer tool set. I mean, they've always been kind of a step behind on the developer tools. Um, certainly they're trying to do their best in that, in that area. And, uh, a lot of stuff is coming out, but this is one of the areas that had been neglected. Um, and, um, it, w- while I was working there, we had, um, you know, every major release, you as part of R&D had to be there watching for gags or exceptions um, as the release lands on the instance. And so then you would triage those exceptions and figure out if you needed to do a patch or a, or a hot fix, even if it's, so, if it's critical. So those tools uh, were available to the internal developers, uh, but they, they don't exist for um, developers that are working on the platform. And I always found that, you know, uh, to be kind of unfair. You know, we, as, as developers on Salesforce, we're, we're not, you know, we're in the same position. We want to make sure that work is doing good. We want to make sure the um, the code that we're pushing isn't causing problems. Um, and even and if it is, we want to know about it right away. You know, like we don't have to wait for a account, account executive to complain to us that they can't close an opportunity or that, you know, a support rep to tell us that a case isn't getting created. Because um, yep. then you get hunted down in the middle of the night and you have to solve it right there. And part of it is for our own benefit, of course. You know, we don't want exactly. to, you know, we yeah. don't want to, we, we want to have a life. We don't want to spend fixing issues. Uh, so that's that, that was missing, you know, and that's how it was, I, I started building this package and eventually adding more features to it, adding some integrations. And at some point I just, you know, well, hold on a minute. This is uh, this is a product right here. Um, why don't I, you know, make it formal? And uh, that's kind of how it went.
0: So, are you? Uh, you're basically right now. Uh, I think going through the security review, um, and probably yep. in the near future, you're going to have it a available directly in the App Exchange. Yep. Um, what would be I guess the best way for someone that wants to, uh, you know, try the product itself, what would be the best way for them to, to find it or find you?
1: Oh, um, you can, um, you can drop a, uh, drop on our website, uh, HTTPS, uh, uh Um, it is a, there is a contact form that you can fill out. Feel free to do that. Or just shoot me, shoot me a note, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, yeah we're happy to you know talk to our early adopters and you know um, have a discussion on what their needs are. and you know, happy to give you the product to try out. Um, we We definitely will have a you know, a trial version because I think one of the benefits to this product is you you have to let it um, collect some data, um, okay. and then eventually you will see, that, you know, you get some insights from it and um, you will see, you know, how it uh, how it, it will be useful. Um, so there's always, you know, um, I'm happy to to talk you through the use cases and um, just in general, um, like understand what, uh, what it is that you're trying to do. But I think if you're a developer, honestly, or if you're even an admin or anyone that's doing anything on Salesforce, and even if you're not technical, you know, you know how your org is doing, uh, this is a great tool, um, um super easy to use. It uh, gives you a lot of power if you want it. If you don't want it, it can just sit there and collect data and, and let you know when things are going bad. So it, uh, it, you know, it, it has multiple uses, but yeah, just drop me a note. Um, uh, uh I, I assume we'll have a contact, uh, uh some sort yeah. of contact information. So yeah, drop me a note, email me, Uh send me a text message, you know, and hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to, to chat and, uh, you know, give you a, give you a demo. And uh, if, if you're interested, it's, uh, it's you know, we'll we'll install it in your org or we give you a link and you can try it out.
0: Excellent. So we're going to have uh, the link uh, uh, wherever this podcast is being distributed on, on, in, um the link also to pharaohs.ai where you can get more information about the product and also um, where you'll be able to reach directly to reach out to Nikita and then he can guide you through the process of actually installing it and trying it out. And I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks Nikita for the conversation. Uh, It was awesome. So I learned a lot as I always do from you. (laughs) So for um,
1: yeah, really appreciate uh, appreciate the time.
0: No problem at all. Thank you. So thanks everyone for listening.